Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Welcome to this episode of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Moral kabarian Skelsey. I'm your host today, and we're discussing lentigo malignant melanoma mapping with Dr. Christian Navaretti de Chant, who is a melanoma specialist in the skin cancer unit in Santiago, Chile. Dr. Navaretti has going to be discussing a confounding problem in dermatologic surgery, the issue of preoperative mapping of margins of lentigo maligna and lentigo maligna melanoma. Christian, can you give us some background to start off with, led you to this study? Hi, Maral. Such a pleasure to be here discussing this very interesting topic. I mean, I think uh, lentigo maligna is such an exciting skin cancer because it has very special features that other melanomas don't have, right? Lentigo maligna tend to have these very common suckling extension that tends to go beyond what your clinical margins are, what you can see with your eyes, right? Even with your dermatoscope. So this translates into wider clinical margins that you use for classic melanoma. And also this translates into uh, more frequent local recurrence. So can you give us kind of a broad stroke outline of your study? Yes. So when we're doing stage excision for lentigo malignas, uh, you tend to see these subclinical extensions translating into wider margins than you, you would expect. So this could be problematic for both patients and physicians, right? You would like to know or better prepare for your surgery, trying to estimate before surgery what your margin is going to be, how wide is going to be your defect, and what type of reconstruction you might want to use, right? If this is going to be just a single primary closure flap or a more complex flap or even a graft, right? So this is something patient asks us and, and also surgeons want to be prepared for that. So with that background, we started studying confocal microscopy first as a diagnostic tool for lentigo maligna. And then in the last few years, we realized, we and others too from Europe, realized that confocal microscopy correlates well with this subclinical uh, extension on lentigo maligna. So there were some studies before this one. But they were small, they all have less than 30 patients. Some of them were retrospective. So we wanted to do a study uh, in the real world, prospective, trying to see how well the subclinical extension evaluated by a confocal correlates with the real gold standard histopathology when you perform excisions. That was the reason why we decided to do the study. Your study is significantly larger than the others that have been previously published. You had how many patients? 72 patients were analyzed with confocal microscopy. We had some exclusions first. At first, there were 83 patients, but as in any patient with antigo maligna, some decided to have topical treatment like imiquimod, some got radiotherapy, some outright decided not to have surgery, and some were lost to follow-up. So we ended up with 72 patients being operated and imaged before the, the surgery, right? And how many of those correlated in terms of the original biopsy and the pathology with RCM? Oh, that's a great question. So, I mean, I think to understand what we did, I would divide the cohort into the debulking, right? The center of the lesion and the margins. And I think this is important because when you first see patients, some patients had a biopsy, an excisional biopsy that removed the whole lesions because 
got a pink scar. And some patients do have residual disease, right? Like clinically evident residual disease pigmentation. And that was our first question. Like, can we really see the residual melanoma at the center of the lesion despite the biopsy, but also then the margins, right? So I would say the agreement on the center of the tissue between histopathology and confocal microscopy was excellent, was around 91%, 90% for the center, for the debulking, right? So that means 91% of the times we recognize residual disease when it was real residual disease, right? So scar wasn't, that doesn't make an impact. And that was the point I wanted to make. So scar doesn't make an impact. We had some studies, as I told you, evaluating the, the margin mapping with confocal microscopy. Those were small studies. And most studies before uh, us for diagnosis of lymphoma were performed on unbiopsy tissue, right? Before the biopsy. So this study and the others, the prior small, small studies, confirmed that confocal microscopy can be used even in, in size that had a scar before. So this confirms that the accuracy of confocal microscopy is not affected by the scar tissue, right? And what about the correlation of the margins with your dermatopathologist? Okay, again, and, and this is the second part of the study. So just to clarify, we're first talking about the center, the deep bulk of the lesion. Now we're talking about the subclinical extension. So to better understand this, imagine we did a simulation of the surgery. We use some paper rings, uh, specially designed paper rings that have some small indentations that mark the 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 9 o'clock. So we use these specially designed paper rings on patients, and we put the rings simulating a 5-millimeter clear skin margin, right? Like of normal skin based on naked eye examination under Moscovy. So we image at the 5-millimeter margin, simulating that was like the suffering extension of the lentigable ligna. And for that, we got an overall 85% agreement, which I think is really good. Like, of course, it's not 100%. We did some underestimation and some overestimation, but 85% correlation for the margins estimated with confocal microscopy when compared to the, the gold standard histopathology at five millimeters. And the positive predictive value. So how many dermatopathologists actually reviewed the margins? So margins were reviewed by like three uh, dermatopathologists, like expert dermatopathologists from Memorial Sun Kettering, which are very used to performing this stage excision technique. It's performed for years there, and I think they're, they're an expert on, on evaluating the margins. But I think that's also a great discussion point, right? We know that patients with malignant tend to have this melanocytic hyperplasia on normal skin, right? So even for expert dermatopathologists, sometimes they can tell the difference between hyperplasia of melanocytes versus the true trail edge of lentigomalina, right? So the trailing edge could be a very problematic issue to really recognize. So I think that's one of the limitations of uh, our study, um, that some margins that we thought were positive might have been in reality just melanocytic hyperplasia. There's no way we can tell that apart uh, with confocal microscopy. The only way we approximate that is when we see atypical melanocytes at the margin we can track down the trailing edge towards the center of lesion. And we can see if this is connected to the main tumor because most commonly lentigomalina tends to grow continuously, right? So, so in reality, if we see some atypical melanocytes at the periphery of lesion, we can go back to the center of lesion. And that was one of our 
techniques to try to differentiate velocity hyperplasia of the sun damage scheme from actual trailing edge of the tegumlinga. Did you have normal controls in terms of other sun damage scan in the same patient? We did not for the study. And I think that's something we wanted to explore. And I think we're starting the study now. So we're now comparing the confocal features of lentaglomalina with the controller of cheek, right? So to see if there is something there that can help us better recognize this melancholy hyperplasia of sun damaged skin versus real lentaglomalina. But again, I think that's a very challenging issue for clinical perspective from a physiopathological perspective, and of course, from a confocal microscopy perspective. So that's a great discussion point and shows the challenges of lentaglomalina, right? Can you talk a little bit more about just the the mechanics of doing this? Yes. So how long does it take? That's again another great discussion point and, and it's something that I think uh, readers should understand in perspective that so first there are mainly two types of confocal devices. We have the handheld device and we have the arm mounted or tissue fixed confocal device. For all these lesions, we use the handheld device which is a handheld probe, easy to use, easy to manipulate, but the most challenging point is navigating the lesion because you don't have a map, you do this by hand, right? So that's why we use these paper rings to isolate the lesion and have these margins around the lesion. You could use these specially designed paper rings or you could use this surgical tape, like the, the skin color or white surgical tape. Anything that can create margins around lesion but that allows you to realize where are you on the lesion, right? So the probe is moved towards different quadrants from 12 to 3, 3 to 6, 6 to 9, 9 to 12 in a continuous fashion, right? So you are seeing continuously the 100% of the peripheral margins, right? Just like in a most slide, right? So you would be seeing 100% of the margins at the level of the dermal junction, which is the classic level where these melanocytes, indigenous melanocytes are, right? So again, it depends on the location. Of course, it's harder to navigate a lesion on the nasal ala than the cheek or the forehead. It depends on the size of the lesion. If it's a small, tiny lesion on the cheek, I think it could take anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes. But if it's a large 5-centimeter lesion on the forehead, it could take almost an hour. So I think that's a very important point to highlight of, of this technique. But it requires time, requires time and dedication. And you have someone helping you record what you're seeing, record your margins, record where in the lesion, where in the quadrants is this subclinic extension. How long, for instance, did it take you to become adept at RCM? <laughs> Again, a great question. And, and we have discussed this also in different meetings. And there's not a short answer to calling someone an expert on confocal microscopy. But I would say after a year, I think, of seeing confocal microscopy almost daily, I think you're able to interpret, acquire, and obtain the images that you need for performing a margin mapping, right? So I, I would say it's a year of training for, for performing these techniques. Um, you talked a lot about this is a cost-saving procedure. Can you give some more details of how exactly this would diminish healthcare costs. Yeah, yeah. 
So again, I think all these non-invasive techniques can save costs. And I think Italians have done some cost-efficacy studies first on diagnosis, right? So you save biopsies because you avoid unnecessary excisions. Um, so I think that's one part of the of the story. But now when we're seeing specifically for surgical uh, uses of confocal microscopy, I think it will help you avoid, again, uh, multiple punch biopsies on the margins for mapping, right? That could save money for the patients, could save time for the surgeons, and could streamline the management, right? So imagine you have the first visit of your patient, you have a biopsy proven entangled maligna. Sometimes you do uh, additional biopsy scouting biopsies to better understand the margins. With confocal microscopy, you could streamline these and understand the cycling extension uh, real time in your office without performing additional invasive procedures, right? So I think that's one option. And the second way of, of saving money is if you believe in your margins, you could save stages, right? So if you see cycling extension going beyond five millimeters, I would say to seven, eight millimeters, you could pick that as your first clinical margin and add additional normal looking tissue beyond what you saw, right? So you could save layers. But again, that means you believe in your findings, right? <laughs> Do you have any follow-up studies on recurrences after confocal microscopy has been used for mapping? So again, another, another excellent question. So again, I think this needs to be specified in our study. We didn't change our management based on confocal findings. The goal of the study, the objective was to understand the correlation between confocal microscopy and the histopathological margins. So every single surgery was performed as per standard of care at the center MSK. So we did cap at five millimeter margins as confocal didn't exist, right? That was the only way of really understanding the correlation. Going forward, I think there need to be prospective studies that really change, uh, ideally randomized control studies that, that compare number of stages evaluated with confocal versus naked eye examination or dermoscopy. But we, what we do know so far with the data we have is that confocal microscopy can do help detect recurrences. That's something we do know. So even if you use confocal microscopy for margin mappings and you do your standard of care surgery, you just use this for removing the unknown factor and better understanding what you're going to uh, operate on. You could use confocal microscopy later on for you think there is some recurrence, some pigmentation there in or around the scars. We do know confocal microscopy can help detect the recurrences. I don't know if that answered your question or was it different. Yeah. So do you see this becoming a part of mainstream treatment? Wow. I think... I mean, many things need to happen before that, that can be a reality. First, we need to start introducing confocal into the residence curriculum, into the training curriculum, right? I think uh, few centers have confocal microscopy in the United States, in South America, in Europe, they have, they have more. So only few residents are used to or are exposed to confocal microscopy during the, their training. That's the first thing that needs to happen. Then I think cost of devices should be lower, and I expect that's going to happen in the, in the near future. And today, in my clinical practice, I do use confocal weekly, but only for selected cases. I don't use it for every single case, but I use it for cases that I think they might have 
suckling extension beyond what my eyes are seeing. So ill-defined lesions, patients with a lot of sun damage, or lesions that are arising in complex areas, lower eyelid, on the nose, you know what I mean? On the genitalia. So on those very H zone areas, NCCM H zone areas, I do try to do confocal microscopy before surgery because I think it helps me prepare me and the patient. For example, coordinate oculoplastic surgeon or coordinate a plastic surgeon for specific cases. At least have them ready to go if needed. So I think that's what I'm doing here in my practice now. And also I tend to use, if I see a lot of subclinical extension, I tend to move my initial margin two to three millimeters beyond what I was planning initially. I still don't go exactly as the confocus is, but if, if I was planning five millimeters and I see cells, atypical cells at five millimeters or six millimeters, I tend to go eight as my first stage. So I, I save one or two stages by doing that. What is the next step for you in terms of the next studies that you're going to embark on? Yeah, so I think currently confocal microscopy has proven useful for diagnosis for margin mapping, for recurrence detection, and for evaluation of incompletely excised lentigral malignancy. Those are four steps into the diagnosis and treatment of lentigral malignancy that have been already proven in high quality, I will say, adequate number of patients so far. I think the next step is really moving towards doing prospective studies, ideally randomized control studies, comparing the efficacy of confocal microscopy to save stages and to save stages without compromising cure rate and recurrence rate, right? So I think those are the next steps. I think where, where we where we think it might be again a great area for confocal development is also for non-invasive treatments such as imiquimod, radiation therapy. Again, for those patients that used to be like some sort of like an act of faith where you see lesion with complete complete response. You're not repeating biopsies. You just see the, the skin. You see it's okay just with your naked eye. I feel in that area for non-invasive treatments, I think also confocal microscopy should get a real special space for it. For you. So again, part of the personalized medicine for pigmented lesions in particular. I love that definition, right? I think I think that's what we're where we're going. I think we're getting there. Again, we discussed the, the current limitations, but I think the pigmented lesion clinic of the future will for sure have non-invasive imaging as one of the cornerstone of patient diagnosis and management. And I think patients are very, very happy whenever they undergo these non-invasive imaging uh, procedures. I think, I think they understand the complexity of the disease. And in my experience, they are better prepared for the surgery. And also they thank you very much when you tell them, I think it's gonna go in one stage. I don't see any subclinic extension. Of course, that's very reassuring for them, right? That's terrific. Do you have any last comments for our audience? Yeah, I think everyone should learn Confocal in the future, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think doctors sh should get involved into the development of these new non-invasive technologies. We should be very excited about them. I know that like it's hard to learn a new technology, but when you see real time in vivo, you really get excited to really understand and see things that were never possible in vivo 
in a bedside manner, right? Like, so I think my final message is that I think we should be very excited about the time we're living. I think things are going to get better. We get better treatments. We get better diagnostic techniques. I think this is a great time for, for patients with melanoma. We're seeing great advances. And I hope we can make this disease easier to treat and manage for both doctors and patients, right? That's, it's a, you know, you're doing great work and we look forward to your next contribution. So thank you. Thanks for inviting me, Moral. It was very excited to talk here and discuss this research. I just want to thank again all the Memorial Sun Caring team that was always great, and they're always creating all these beautiful devices and studies. So again, thanks for inviting me. Thank you, and thank you to our listeners. Join us for our next episode of Dialogues in Dermatology. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to Dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.